From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. No matter what you do, no matter if you're a beginner or an amateur or a professional, pasta will happen. If you open this book, pasta will happen, and it will be delicious. I am certain of that. F your pasta machine. For Evan Funky, that phrase has become something of a rallying cry. At his restaurant Felix in Venice, the bearded chef is focused on showcasing the Italian traditions of rolling fresh sheets of pasta by hand. So much so that there's a room dedicated to pasta making he calls the laboratory. Funky's all-consuming passion is the subject of his first cookbook, Americans Foglino. Hello there. (laughs) What an intro. Hi. Your book is called American Sfoglino. Yes. What is a Sfoglino? Sfoglino is, uh, in the Bolognese dialect, it means a sheet maker, one who rolls pasta by hand with a mattarello on a tagliere. Um, So that means with a rolling pin? On a wooden board. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Basically, yeah. Um, I learned this specific style and technique from a woman named Alessandra Spizny of La Vecchia Scuola Bolognese in Bologna in the tail end of 2007. And she is probably the most famous pasta maker of that traditional kind of pasta in the world. Correct. She is an absolute powerhouse and she really opened the door for me to start seeking out pasta makers throughout the peninsula of Italy 11 years ago. It's become my, my life's work and, and really um, my, my ultimate passion in life. To perfect something that is absolutely analog. I would never dare to say that it's, I'm perfect. I'm the perpetual student. It's the um, search for perfection, though. 100%. 100%. And um, even after rolling somewhere near 35,000 sfoglie up to now, um, I'm still... I'm still figuring it out because pasta is an animal. It lives, it breathes, it sweats. It's directly affected by its immediate environment. So um, it's never the same. So this Italian mentor, this enormously famous woman, isn't your only mentor. You had another mentor who's fascinating to me. <laughs> um, I've had uh, I've had a few. Obviously, Alessandra was the ultimate mentor for pasta, but I think... Uh, the foundational mentor was really Lee Hefter of Spago Beverly Hills. He taught me those enduring principles that define how I run kitchens today. But you also met a young man when you were at ah, the, when you were at Alessandra School. Kozaku, yes. So Kozaku Kawamura, <laughs> he's an enigma. Um, Kozaku, I met him in Bologna. He had moved from Tokyo to Bologna to study. Sfoglia Mattarello. He was uh, kind of like a paid-under-the-table instructor at the school. And um, we kind of struck this brotherhood through pasta. Um, we connected immediately. We understood each other, not because he, you know, he spoke a little bit of English and I was dying for someone to talk to, but he looked at pasta in a completely different way. He looked past the dogma that exists in basically everything the Italians do. There's some type of myth, lore, and dogma connected to anything that's reached modern day. He taught me to look at the architecture of a shape, um, how the water travels around it how uniform it should taste on the palate. And he basically opened my mind to begin to deconstruct and tear apart what is typically acceptable for making 
particular shapes and then put it back together and discard things that I did not agree with uh, and then just didn't work. And over time, over the 10 years and massive amounts of failure, I began to formulate ways to take this very, very uh, cottage industry, this very home-based style of making pasta and turn it into pasta that feels like it's made by a machine in a commercial setting, but still has that touch of handmade. One of the things that really uh, fascinated me was this sentence in the book in which you talk about the almost impossible to achieve balance between texture and structure, elasticity and extensibility. Could you talk about those elements which come together to form what we know as sort of that perfect bite of pasta and why the balance matters? It's it's like the ultimate concerto. Um, There's so many elements that get us to that point. When I make tortelloni, and I'm stretching it against the gluten structure around my fingers and I place it down, it searches for that equilibrium. And that's the most beautiful moment in making pasta for me is to see it find this natural state, find its balance. And pasta, very much like bread, is formulaic. It's mathematics. It's the measurement of ingredients and time and structure and all of these very, very hardline things, very binary things. And if you look at the romance of pasta, you don't see any of that. You see the history and the deliciousness that it is. But how I look at it is very, very different. I look at the structure and the architecture and the humidity controls and the temperature controls and the balance of hydration and the age of the flower and all of these elements that no one's really paying attention to. They just mix semolina and water and go. I really broke it apart as much as I possibly could so that I could control each and every single element. But then there's the element, since you have issued the machine, there's the element that is the hand. 100%. And this is the greatest challenge because for me, pasta is 90% body mechanics and 10% passion. And trying to get seven different pasta makers at Felix who all have differing size of hands and differing heights and whatever, all of that, trying to get them to make pasta that looks and tastes and texturally feels the same way is one of the most extraordinary challenges I've ever come across. But really looking at body mechanics and how people make pasta and those functions has taught me some little tricks to get people with very big hands to make very small pasta because that's where I came in. I went to Bologna and I saw these women, amazing making tortellini the size of the tip of your pinky and you can fit eight of them on a spoon. And I'm like, there's just no way I'm going to be able to make this. But eventually I taught my body how to do it because my hands are large. So we've been talking about to this point on shapes. Yes. Take us back to the doughs. You have in the book two master doughs and then a third that has spinach. Yes. So talk to me a bit about the 49% versus 57% hydration, Mm. and then the water-based dough versus the egg-based dough? Well, water penetrates protein far more efficiently than egg because of viscosity, right? It's very logical. So you have to reduce the amount of hydration. 
right? And furthermore, you have to let it rest far less time because it's just efficient. It does its job. The viscosity of the eggs and the fat content of the yolk make it more difficult to hydrate. So this dough, the 59%, is basically a gorilla-proof dough that I've tested in cold temperature, humid temperature, and extremely hot. What about flour? Because so many people are buying flour that, and especially you're using zero, zero flour. I am, yes. So if you go to your neighborhood Italian deli and you buy a bag of zero, zero, it could have been there for two years. It's probably sitting there for two years. Correct. There's really nothing that you can do about it. Well, you can. People could order <laughs> from you could Central find, Milling. This is very true. Um, my opinion of American double zero is that it's not fine enough. The Italians have been milling double zero for under two years. So what does double zero mean? Double zero is a specific to a cut. So it's very, very fine. Finely cut. Finely cut meaning milled. Milled, yes. So it's like It's tell. milled twice. Milled twice. If you throw it, it's going to be a poof in the air. Whereas zero is a little, it's less fine. It's not so like talcum powder. But the whole beginning of this fine flour really was based out of royalty. The whiter the flour, the purer it was, and the richer you were, and all of that stuff. Most of pasta's history has been based on very, very crudely processed flours. And those flours were milled from very, very hard-won wheat, because wheat is a very difficult plant to grow in most of Italy because it's very rocky, it's rugged uh, territory. So you see a lot of these flowers just in the past couple hundred years really gain some, some footing. But before that, it was really very crude and also most of the time cut with other pulses like fava bean flour, or chickpea flour, or what have you. So now let's talk about the tools because the tools are beautifully simple. Aren't they? So the board. Yes. The tagliere. The tagliere. And the mattarello, the, yes. the rolling pin. So we're not talking about a rolling pin that one uses for pie. No. We're talking about a much longer stick. Yes. At the very minimum, it's 100 centimeters. And why is that? What techniques do you do that makes you need a stick of that size? Well, it's a, it's a couple of things. Uh, number one, the size of the ball of dough that you'll roll is going to dictate how much length you need. So typically, if you're going to roll, say for instance, and also your table and your counter space. So I've done the calculations. How much pasta can I roll with this length of mozzarella? How much pasta can I roll out to this thinness with this amount of counter space? We did the math. So for instance, at Felix, we have a 32-inch tagliere, and we have up to 120 centimeters of mozzarella. That means we can roll up to 525 grams of sfoglia, just because we have that amount of surface space and that amount of mozzarella. One of my favorite techniques in the book is how you use post-it notes. Absolutely, because it's standard. If I said printer paper, if you buy printer paper at like uh, Office Depot, right, and you buy printer paper from somebody else, it's all different. But post-its... They're everywhere. So I just said, let's let's do a standard measurement. So I love that nine is yes. the lasagna sheet. Correct. <laughs> it's awesome. And then... And I'm maniacal, Evan, if you <laughs> yeah, had it. Yes, I can tell. <laughs> but what's great about the book is you can see the maniacal Evan. Yes. But it's also such a, a straightforward manual. It must be. And this, these processes are precisely what I teach my pasta makers at Felix. And 
it's a process that I've grown into and formulated over 11 years of practice of me making mistakes. Because once I left Bologna, I didn't practice folio with anyone else. I've learned all of this by trial and error. And that's what makes it so beautiful and so valuable to me. And also gives me, you know, a sense of great responsibility to pass it on. Because if I don't, these processes, these histories and techniques, they die. They die. So I'm a custodian of this this culture and this tradition, and I take it very seriously. Well, thank you so much, Evan. Thank Americans you. Foligno is a welcome addition to the world of pasta books, definitely. Thank you so much. That's Evan Funky, chef at Felix in Venice. We've been talking about his debut cookbook, Americans Foligno. After the break, we're hearing about an epic road trip with perhaps the world's greatest chef. My conversation with Esquire's Jeff Gordonier when we return. Here Be Monsters is a podcast about, well, it's about a lot of things. It's about faith and doubt, love and loneliness, optimism and grief. It's a podcast about the things that frighten us and the things that we can't get out of our heads. Here Be Monsters, KCRW's podcast about the unknown. New episodes out now. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. Say you're a food writer. If the world's greatest chef asks to get coffee, would you say no? Well, maybe if you're Esquire editor Jeff Gordonier. Eventually, he agreed to the unusual request from chef Rene Redzepi. What began as a tentative meeting became a friendship full of travel and adventure, taking them from jungles of Mexico to the Arctic Circle. Gordonier chronicled four years of traveling with Redzepi in a memoir, Hungry, eating, road tripping, and risking it all with the greatest chef in the world. For anyone who has ever imagined a different way, an alternative mode of occupying the earth in which every action was the fruit of some higher purpose, a few days spent in the company of Team Noma could feel positively ambrosial. Surely there was no shortage of problems. Every day delivered a fresh batch of snafus along with the foraged berries and edible insects. But the glow of some ultimate goal gave everything that sense of meaning that felt so comparatively elusive in the crushing grind of trying to stay afloat and serene in 21st century America. To watch the Noma crew at work was to come to understand why otherwise intelligent people join religious cults. It's not for the free love and cathartic dancing, although those early enticements have their appeal. It's because a cult tells you we have the answer. Without an answer, even a manufactured one, life is a slog. With an answer, there is a unity of purpose that can focus the mind and energize the body. That's Jeff Gordonier reading from his book, Hungry. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you because this was one of the best reads I've had yet this year. Oh, wow. Thank you. One of the reasons it was such was the fact that you write about Red Zeppi during a time of his great transition. Yeah. When he's closing Noma and envisioning Noma 2.0, but it isn't yet 
there. Yeah. And you yourself are going through a huge transition in life with a divorce. That's right. And subsequently meeting somebody new and marrying and ending up with children. So there's something I, I found so profound in the way you examine not just the highs of his life, you know, best in the world and all of that, but the amount of failure mm. and starts and stops that happen along the way. Mm-hmm. Just fascinating. Well, I felt that he was at an inflection point, as people say. He was at this pivot in his career, and that if I didn't capture it and chronicle it, it would go unchronicled. It would just be lost. He was uh, closing the original Noma, the best restaurant in the world in the estimation of some gastronomes. And he could have coasted on that nomenclature for decades and just cashed in the check, basically. He decided to blow it up and build a new one on a site that looked like something out of Chernobyl. And he was doing the pop-up in Mexico, the pop-up in Australia. His father was fighting cancer. Uh, Rene himself was nearing 40. I just thought, oh my gosh, this is drama. Books need drama. Books need propulsion. And here's exactly what I'm looking for. And yet the whole thing just started with a call or a text and you seem to be, when it first came from him, a bit befuddled as to why you were being... Summoned. Summoned. <laughs> I was being invited to into the cult, and I wasn't even aware of it. Yeah, I, I mean, the other thread of drama in the book, the other thread of propulsion is is my own depression, essentially torpor that I was in the midst of. I went back to the original email I'd gotten from... Rene Redzepi's operatives at Fidon at the time, the publishing house. And, and it had come to me literally a week after I'd moved out of the house that I shared with my first wife and my two older children. It was a very sad time. It was just an incredibly crushing, depressing time. You know, that's true of anyone. Anyone who's been through a divorce knows that feeling, you know. And I was just not inclined <laughs> to meet with some chef. And hear his rant, you know, here's manifesto about the new Nordic movement. I was just not in the mood. But he turned out to be wildly captivating. And he seems to have an almost telepathic ability to figure out what makes you tick. I think that's one of the reasons Rene Redzepi is a skilled leader at Noma. He knew nothing about my family, knew nothing about the divorce, really didn't know much about me, except that he seemed to have identified that I was an L.A. boy. I grew up here in in. Pasadena and San Marino. And along the way in this conversation, he, he didn't want to talk about the new Nordic movement, thank God. He wanted to talk about <laughs> tacos, which was a complete curveball. You know, I was like, oh, you want to talk to me about tacos, Mr. Denmark? Really? <laughs> uh, it turned out he knew quite a bit. And he said, well, let's, let's go to Mexico together. You end up waking up in a stupor on a, on a beach after one of those just hellacious travel experiences. Yes. And you have no idea what to do, and you feel like you've blown it. And then? Yeah, that's... Well, I wrote, wrote the book with with one concept in mind, which was sort of to mimic or to, to echo the kinetic energy of Red Zeppi himself. Like, I really wanted the book to move fast. And that's why it has no introduction and no exposition in the beginning. 
it just starts with me passed out on a beach, <laughs> which truly happened. I wasn't, some people have said, oh, you were drunk. I, I, I wasn't drunk. I was quite exhausted. We, we had had mezcal, but that had been hours ago. And I, I, we had just visited something like four cities in the course of one day, which is how Rizepi moves. But that sort of captured for me the drift and inertia of my own life that I was just kind of lost in the darkness at that point. And Redzepi had made this decision that he couldn't coast. That's right. He's constitutionally incapable of coasting. He's temperamentally, he's allergic to coasting. He can't seem to stand still. His assistant, Devin McGonigal, she's now moved up in the NOMA organization, but she was his assistant for a while. Um, She told me the sentence she heard from Renee Redzepi the most was, can we move on now? And, And that's what I heard from him all the time as well. And so the book, as a result, hops all over the world. I mean, he, we went go to Sydney, Australia. I went up to Norway in the middle of February above the Arctic Circle and went fishing. Many, many trips to Mexico, many trips to Denmark. There was actually a whole trip to Tennessee, to Blackberry Farm, that didn't make it into the book because it just started to seem repetitive to have these crazy trips. One of the things that I found really interesting, and you talk about it at the beginning of the book, but it's almost like a metaphor for who he is and what drives him is this idea of travel as a pressure release valve for the mundanities of daily life. It's almost like he himself has such a high bar for what he considers mundane that he's constantly needing (laughs) to find a pressure release by input of the new, like the input of the new assuages for him some level of boredom and anxiety. That's exactly it. I think when you hear about people who can't stand still, in some ways they're afraid of maybe almost getting bored with themselves. You're absolutely right. He's essentially a perpetual student. He always wants to learn more about ingredients, history, culture, language, in that way, he and I dovetailed a bit because as a journalist, as you know, you know, a lot of journalists have that mindset. I always want to keep learning. But he's almost Captain Ahab about it. You know, like lear- learning is his white whale. And he pushes it to a level in which learning and health or learning and sanity can be at odds with one another. <laughs> yeah, he goes way beyond what we can usually endure. Like even there's even a scene in the book where we have a trip with Nadine, his wife, and their children out to see some sea turtles on a beach in Mexico. I liked the idea of seeing the so-called greatest chef in the world in the guise of a beleaguered suburban dad, (laughs) which exactly he was at that moment. He was frustrated, like, come on, move fast, get your stuff, get your beach gear, come on, let's move. But when when we went to the beach and started floating out to see these turtles, it was not enough for him to kind of observe them from afar. From the line that was created by the protection organization. Yeah, there were local authorities with bullhorns who were yelling at people who got too close to the turtles. And this was extremely frustrating to Rene. He wanted to be close to the turtles. So at a certain point, he uttered some expletives and, and urged us to go under the barrier and just get closer to the turtles. You know, authorities be damned. And that, that was very indicative of how he rolls. I mean, he didn't in any way want to interfere with the environment there. He's very sensitive to that. But there's a reason the book is called Hungry. His hunger for learning and for contact with nature is so 
all absorbing to him that he needed. He was like, no, here we go, closer to the turtles. Maybe we get in trouble, but at least we'll see what it's really like. You make the observation in the book about the impermanence of creativity in the culinary world. Unlike a book or a poem that you can revisit or a painting, you can fall into time and time again. A, A plate of food can only be consumed once. Are restless creatives drawn to the kitchen for that reason? I think that's part of it. I think that if Renee Redzepi and the Noma team were still making the dishes that they were making eight years ago, he would have gone bonkers by now. You know, like if you buy the Noma cookbook, all of that is obsolete. They don't make those dishes anymore. There's this wonderful scene in the book where David Chang is with you and Nadine, uh, Renee's wife and Renee in in the kitchen at his house. And you're all having this reverie, not Renee, but the three of you are having this reverie of dishes you miss and you're each naming something. Yeah. And the others are like in a chorus going, oh yeah, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. The langoustine on a hot rock, the musk ox tartare. These dishes have now passed into legend. They don't exist. Noma does not go backward. That is its ultimate ethos. I mean, some people don't know, for instance, that at Noma, there are three separate menus throughout the year, and they're seasonal. So during the winter, early spring, it's a seafood restaurant. It's all about Scandinavian seafood. Right now, in the summer, it's a vegetarian restaurant. They have a plant kingdom menu. There are insects involved. So, because Renee argues that insects are part of the plant kingdom. <laughs> and then in the fall, it's a very unvegetarian restaurant with a wild game menu. And when I say wild game, I will explain it by saying that what I, I understand will be the opening dish on the next fall's fall 2019 wild game menu is raven. Raven? Yeah, the bird raven. Wow. Yeah. I don't know about you. But I've never tasted raven. I've never tasted would... raven, but just the poetic <laughs> ramifications of raven. It's a very goth menu. Actually, he sh- it looked like a Halloween menu. I'm a little scared of it. And for th- I've eaten at Noma seven times now. And for that very reason, I might go back to for this goth wild game menu just because I'm curious. Apparently, there's like shots of moose blood and stuff. He's always changing it. That's the point. So like when they are serving the Plant Kingdom menu right now, they're also developing the wild game menu, and they're actually ordering things for the seafood menu next year. And and along that way, they don't repeat. Another thing that I found very resonant in the book is how, and maybe it might be because you captured him in this particular time, not just when he had closed Noma and had not yet opened um, 2.0, but that he was dealing with the Mexico pop-up. Yeah which had so many more challenges than any of the others, not just challenges of sourcing, but of um, media, um, hyper-focus, and issues of people banding around words like appropriation. Absolutely, yeah. And then the fact that he lost a million-dollar backer. Yeah. So they had to have that crazy price. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's another element of drama that's implicit in the book that— uh, people were not aware of it at the time because he couldn't explain this to the press. Well, nobody would have listened. Whatever he would have said, they no. would have spun it. But what was fascinating about how you describe him during that time is this man who was so afraid of not pulling it off. Very much. So vulnerable. Yeah. And 
pushing it forward while falling into darkness. Mm-hmm. And I just think that that's so important for people. We tend to love this trajectory mm-hmm. of the hero yeah. that has no faults and is somehow inured to pain when the real hero is the one who feels all the pain and yet continues the trajectory. Yeah, I'm so happy you said that because I think there was some anticipatory concern on the part of food media comrades of mine that this book would be just a toast to the great hero, the man, the myth, Rene Redzepi. You know, and it's not. That third act of the book is very important because he essentially falls apart as he tries to bring Noma Mexico together while simultaneously building this new Noma back in Copenhagen. And it was a very dark time, and he thought that he had bankrupted the whole operation. He had thought he had finally pushed too far and that his need for change had gotten the better of him. And by the way, Mexico was kind of kicking his ass. You know, like, I mean, Mexico was winning in terms of if he was trying to get it under control— Chefs like Alejandro Ruiz and Roberto Solis, one of his best friends in, in Merida, were telling him, like, look, you don't understand Mexico, man. Mexico will do it her way, you know, and you'll and you'll learn, you know. So, yeah, there was this one moment. I, I, and again, this is just accidental. You know, he, he had texted me, like, come to Merida. We're going on another research trip. So got a cheap flight, went down to Merida, and everything started to go wrong. And, you know, Tejo from the New York Times, was about to publish a piece about announcing Noma Mexico, which is huge press for them. Their website wasn't really up and running. They had just lost a million dollars. One of their investors had just rescinded a promise of money. As a result, the price of the meal had to go from probably about $250 to $600 per plate, which is exorbitant, of course, and it's bad optics. And he knew that. I mean, he's a smart man. So he was like, okay, in Mexico, we're going to have a $600 a plate dinner because we have no choice and we don't have time to get the money. And the reservations were just trickling in. Yeah. Yeah, well, he thought for at first, like, okay, when the Sydney Noma pop-up was announced, they had like 27,000 people on the wait list in an hour or something like that. And when this one was announced, he also had bad... Like Wi-Fi, he had this very spotty connection. So he, and and the website wasn't really working back in Denmark, and so at one point he said, "Oh, we have like eighty people signed up, which is a disaster. They would be done. They were flying the entire team of Noma to Tulum, putting them up in housing for weeks, months, really, with their children, putting their children in schools. The operation was extremely expensive, and so." You know, people say, oh, well, you know, they shouldn't charge that much money. And they're just, you know, Noma did not make money from this. They probably actually lost money. It was. And you you talk about how they worked with a particular organization that sourced uh, foodstuffs from very small producers. And that the lion's share of the money actually went to these really tiny producers. Oh, yeah. The lion's share of the money went to the Yucatan. It went to people harvesting honey people growing produce, people actually making the kitchen, like making building the equipment in the kitchen. He essentially hired an entire Mayan village to work as part of the Noma team, the women from Yaksuna, Mayan village in the Yucatan, to make the tortillas because he was so impressed by these tortillas when we visited uh, the village and had Cochinita Pibil. He was like, oh, I wonder what these women are doing in April and May. 
And I was like, what are you thinking? You know, it was very smart of him, though. <laughs> it was actually just a decision based on quality. He was like, I want the best tortillas. These are the best tortillas I've ever tasted. They're using local corn. These women are brilliant. I, I Like, they should be part of Noma, Mexico. In fact, that trip to Yaksune sort of cured his blues. That was the point at which he was like, no, we're going to make this happen no matter what. Like, he reconnected. With why he was doing it in the first place. Yeah, Evan, that's exactly it. He reconnected in that village. While I was there, I was so fortunate to happen to be there with my reporter's notepad. He was like, I love Mexico. I love the people. I love the ingredients. I love... This is why we're doing it. Well, Jeff, it's an extraordinary book. And thank you so much for um, living through your personal pain and thank you, um, Evan. to create it. It's quite wonderful. Thank what you. What a great read. Thank you. That's Jeff Gordonier, food and drinks editor at Esquire. We've been talking about his travels with Chef Rene Redzepi of Noma in Copenhagen. They're captured in his memoir called Hungry. Coming up, the market report. And a look back at the glory days of Musso and Frank in Hollywood, which celebrates its 100th anniversary this year. Incredible. Stick around. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. Now for the market report, let's turn it over to Jillian Ferguson. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. I am very excited to be filing this Market Report from the city of Alhambra, where we are at 2nd and Main Street at the Sunday Alhambra Farmer's Market. And I'm talking with Jessica Wang. Jessica is a trained pastry chef who has now focused her attention on pickles. And Jessica, you have a company called Picle. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is? Hi, thanks for having me. I'd be happy to tell you about Picle. <laughs> it is currently a fermentation educational project, and that's just the beginning. I'm hoping that it'll eventually evolve into more than just that. But for now, I'm teaching skills on fermentation um, from the basics to a little more complex recipes and things you can do with pickles, like dishes you can prepare with them. So you actually teach workshops out of your backyard, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Tell us about what workshops you have coming up. It's mid-September. I think elsewhere in the country it's fall, but here it is blazing hot still. (laughs) So seasonally, what are you pickling these days? Currently, um, there are a lot of cucumbers, and I've been doing Asian cucumber pickles. I have a workshop today that is on Korean and Chinese pickles. And I'm really into these stuffed cucumber pickles that have a mixture of It's like a carrot and chili and onion paste, and you can have fish sauce or not, and you stuff them into the cucumber. Something I ate growing up, I had a family friend who always had those around, and we lived walking distance from a Korean grocery store, so we would have them in our fridge pretty often. So I know that from your Instagram, which is Pickle Pickle Co., I'm going to plug you here, I've seen you pickle all sorts of things. Like, you know, one day you were foraging seaweed and pickling seaweed. You were buying long beans and pickling Chinese long beans. What else are you pickling this time of year? There's definitely bok choy, actually year-round. And um, since we're talking about kimchi, (laughs) that is something that I've made into a kimchi when I couldn't find Napa cabbage, since they're all related in the mustard family, and it turned out delicious. I know that you do your seasonal kimchis, but you also have all sorts of pickles that you make. Give us a sense of some of your pickling workshops that 
that maybe have a different point of view? Sure. So in this series of summer classes, I do have another melon class. Rather than cucumber, it's watermelon. And I got into the idea of a zero waste workshop. And with the watermelon, it's something that is, you know, it's got the rind, which is not so sweet that you could turn into a savory pickle. And coming from my art background and just being kind of a playful person, I started making objects with the outer skin, the green rind, and that turned into a workshop concept. And that's definitely available during the summer only. But I also am really interested in my cultural heritage, which is Chinese and Taiwanese. And so I've been kind of exploring pao cai, which is a type of it can include many vegetables, but it's pickles that are fermented in a salt brine. And it's usually involving mustard greens, but you can do root vegetables or a combination. And it works great. Jessica, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Jessica Wang, owner of Peaklay. You can find information on all of her pickle workshops at picklepickle.co. Robert Dimmittman and his siblings, Susie and Steve, have been coming to the Alhambra Farmer's Market for 30 years. Their dad started Kualuk Gardens in Covina, where they grow Asian tropical fruits. Robert, you just had a mob at your stand for lychees. Give us a sense of how you and your family started to grow lychees here in Southern California. Well, dad had some Cantonese friends that had restaurants here and had brought dad cuttings of different plants and whatnot, um, pomelo, the grapefruit, and the lychee, and uh, just decided he wanted to grow it for his friends. It was never put in the ground for a cash crop. It was just so he could give fruit to his friends. Tell us a little bit about who your dad was. (laughs) Dad was a pretty amazing gentleman. Put uh, his brother and sister through medical school and then put himself through and got a Ph.D. in plant science, plant pathology, and taught at Cal Poly Pomona for 40 years. And through his teaching, he went all over the world, I understand. Yeah, yeah, he did. He traveled a lot doing little gigs for different companies, Guatemala and Mexico and Greece. We went to Europe when I was young and lived there a year. But um, I don't know, Dad was just into his plants, and this was the most important thing to him. And he planted the first lychee tree in Southern California. As far as we know, yes. <laughs> the old <laughs> is, timer. Does that lychee tree still exist on your farm? It passed away oh. just recently, and I don't know why. Hmm. I don't know if it just missed Dad or what exactly, but he'd go talk to him and pet them all the time. Really? I think it's the only reason why they did so well. <laughs> so you have how many trees on your property in Covina? Of what, the lychee? Mm-hmm. I think there's about 27 lychee. Okay. And then probably 35 or 40 uh, longan. And then there's probably a good 35 wampay, which is one of the rarest of the Asian fruits, actually. And we're going to talk about all three of these. But I know that tomorrow at the Sunday market, you're going to have the very last of your lychee crop this year. Give us a sense of what lychee is. For people who aren't familiar, can you describe it for us? It's kind of strawberryish looking. It has a rough skin on it, a clear meat on the inside, and a, usually a large brown seed inside of that. It's considered one of the top five dessert fruits in the world. Mm. And I've had a lot of professors, a lot of doctors and everything else try to tell me what they know about it, which usually isn't very much, unfortunately, because it's a rough one. I mean, Dad has studied this fruit for 
70 plus years and still didn't have a real good rate of grafting it and making baby trees from it. And uh, that's pretty rare because dad, I mean, he was superb at all his doings as far as trees went and grafting and inarching and the rest of the stuff he did. And are there different varieties? Yeah, there's uh, quite a few. We have four or five varieties on the ranch here, but I think there's quite a few more. There's a thousand year old tree still producing fruit in Lingnan University in China. Still produces edible fruit. So this week, tomorrow, will be your last week at the market with the lychees. What do we have coming up from your farm? Um, The wampei, which is a citrus fruit from a little providence in South China only. But more recently, it has been spread out a little bit. Other people know about it. But prior to that, about eight, ten years ago, nobody ever heard of wampei. And Dad just happened to be down there and he brought some back years and years ago back. We've been growing it ever since. And what does the fruit look like and what does it taste like? It's kind of like a grape. Okay. Oh, small. And it, yeah, it has a bittersweet flavor to it because you eat the skin too. And it uh, has seeds in it, green seeds in it, and uh, it's very healthy for you. All right. Well, Robert, the lychee are incredibly delicious. Thank you for bringing them to this market. You're very welcome. <laughs> that was Robert Dimmitman. You can find his lychees only at the Alhambra Farmer's Market on Sundays. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. You just feel that energy when you're sitting there. At least I do. I think that everybody does. That's why people still go to it. That's why people are still drawn to it. In a hundred years, not a lot of places anywhere can say that, but especially in Los Angeles. Stiff martinis, red uniformed waiters, and Welsh rarebit. Take a seat in a mahogany booth at Musso and Frank's on Hollywood Boulevard, and you'll be teleported to a bygone era of Tinseltown. It's where I was first introduced to steamed clams and sand dabs as a child. Later this month, Musso and Frank celebrates its centennial. That's right, 100 years. Writer Leslie Bala wrote an oral history for The Hollywood Reporter about the restaurant's glory days. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Evan. So, Musso and Frank, to me, it's just unbelievable that anything survives 100 years. But if something is going to do that in L.A., no surprise, right? Yeah, I mean, the amazing thing about Musso and Frank is that it's an iconic restaurant in Hollywood, but it's as attached to Hollywood as an entertainment hub and just as the golden age of Hollywood as anything. It's where people have been going since people have been making movies in Hollywood. It's where celebrities and writers and producers and directors They've been gathering there since it started in 1919 up till today. And it's not a paparazzi favorite place. They don't allow that kind of thing. It is just where people go to be themselves, to eat a steak, drink a martini, maybe get some inspiration, you know, whether they've made it or they're still trying to make it. It's just that place. And also have a relationship with waiters and bartenders and busboys who have been there forever and who know incredible detail of what your regular order is. That's right. Now, two of the longest running employees have recently passed away, which is sad, but they're the ones where the stories came out For instance, Sergio, he was the Rolling Stones' favorite waiter. They sat in the same booth. If he wasn't there, even to his late last days, if he wasn't there, they'd call to make sure he could be there. They loved him so much, they flew him to Mexico City 
for a concert and to be there with and for them. It was just that sort of thing. And he knew exactly what everybody wanted to order. What were some of the Stones' favorite foods? Do you know? Yeah, Sergio said that he just said, you know, Keith and Ronnie, they were his favorites. He knew what they wanted right away. But when they would come in, it was always liver and onions, medium well with mashed potatoes and peas. And he said they were in heaven. That's all they needed. (laughs) That's so funny. I know. Two Brits having a very Brit kind of food in the middle of Hollywood. And you know, where else are you going to get that in Hollywood? Yeah, nowhere. Um, what I love about Musso and Franks is just it's such a comfortable space and you don't have to be successful for them to treat you well. So there must have been some writers that you spoke to or actors who we may not know as household names, but who had particular stories to share. Danny Trejo talked about, you know, when he just started acting and he went in there when they had just stopped allowing smoking They just stopped allowing smoking in the restaurant, in the dining room. And he and his friends were smoking. And some guy walked up to him and asked him to, you know, put out a cigarette. And the waiter had to very politely ask them, you know, this is bothering this guy. And his friend, Danny Trejo's friend said, you know, you were just saved by the law. Like, can you imagine telling Danny Trejo to put out a cigarette? (laughs) To me, that's just hilarious. So Um, I understand that you checked in with David Lynch. I did. David had such a great story. He wanted to tell me um, it's connected to the Black Dahlia. And, you know, there's so many stories that sort of swim around Hollywood and Los Angeles from around that time. Such a famous story. So he said that, first of all, he's one of the ones, he said, there must be a trillion stories from Musso and Frank. And the one he wanted to tell me was meeting John P. St. John, badge number one, in LAPD robbery and homicide. He did not tell me what year this was. but um, Badge number one. That's amazing. I know. And every time during this story, because he is the great David Lynch, he said John P. St. John, badge number one, throughout the entire telling of the story. But he said that uh, St. John called him and invited him to dinner. He wanted to show David Lynch something. So they met at Musso and Frank, sat in a booth, were having dinner. And afterwards, John P. St. John, badge number one, opened his briefcase and showed him a black and white, glossy, super beautiful, crisp, clean, focused, detailed picture of the Black Dahlia lying in the grass. And, you know, John P. St. John, badge number one, asked David Lynch, what do you see? And Lynch said, you know, I looked at it for 10 minutes and I couldn't see anything. And he said it racked his brain for years. He was just crazy trying to figure out what was it. And it finally dawned on him that the photos that John P. St. John, badge number one, showed David Lynch were taken at night. And the black dog, she wasn't discovered until the next morning. And he feels like that was the revelation. Like he figured out, well, if the photographs were taken at night, that means they were there. The person who took those photos were there, either the killer or during the killing. And it was just this whole thing that dawned on him. And that is what he remembers about Musso and Frank. He has, he's dying there a million times, but that's one of his favorite memories of that. And how much does that tie this Hollywood icon to this noir story that is so tied to Hollywood that inspired novels and movies? And that's the other thing about Musso and Frank. Not only is it home to where people who wrote novels and the screenwriters who wrote some of the best movies of ever. It's played itself in movies, like the recent Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 
And it's also served as a location in TV shows and movies. And you always know it, like Mad Men. So it was, you know, a bar in Mad Men, but you know it's Musso and Frank because if you look up, if they show the ceiling, you'll see that wonderful wallpaper that lines both the dining room and the bar area, the dining room where the bar is and the dining room in the old room and the new room is what they call them. One of the things, or I think the thing I like best about Musso and Frank is that in a city that is always characterized as having no history and only living on fumes of change, it is this constant where you can go and I can't tell you the number of times that I've gone by myself, sat at the bar, had a martini, a side order of cream spinach, (laughs) and some of the bread with my pat of butter, and I'm just the happiest person in the world, just just breathing in the space. It's just those walls just have so much history. And from the old room that's been open since 1919, and the quote-unquote new room, which was open in the 50s, I believe, which actually retains the bar that was in the famed back room. It was kind of a speakeasy-ish place where a lot of Hollywood writers used to hang out in the 30s and 40s. And uh, in the 50s, when they opened the quote-unquote new room, they put that bar from the back room into it. So that's the bar where, you know, Faulkner and Vonnegut and Chandler, like that's where they rested their elbows. And that you just feel that energy when you're sitting there. At least I do. I think that everybody does. That's why people still go to it. That's why people are still drawn to it. There's still a wait for tables sometimes, you know, it's still busy as ever. In a hundred years, not a lot of places anywhere can say that, but especially in Los Angeles. It's also great to go for lunch. And a lot of people don't know, but they make these amazing pancakes that are like crepes. Really, The flannel cakes. Yeah, the flannel cakes early in the morning. So, I mean, there's a reason to go at any time of day. Thank you, Leslie. Thanks, Evan. Always a pleasure. That's Leslie Bala. We've been reminiscing about Musso and Frank Grill. The restaurant is gearing up to celebrate its 100th anniversary on September 27th, when it also gets a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. To read Leslie's oral history for The Hollywood Reporter, visit kcrw.com slash goodfood. After the break, a new restaurant review from Gustavo Arellano. Stay with us. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Our friend Gustavo Arellano of the LA Times is here with a new restaurant review. He's been filling in for restaurant critic Patricia Escarcega while she's been on maternity leave. Where are we going, Gustavo? We're going to the IE, Miraloma, specifically, right off the 15, Casa Diaz Mexican Kitchen. I don't know why, but this sounds like something I'm going to really love. (laughs) What are they known for? So Casa Diaz Mexican Kitchen, the owners are from Guadalajara, so from the state of Jalisco. And really the menu is like pan-Mexican. It's a type of restaurant that I love. I call them the spots where Mexican families take their mommies to go eat when, you know, to give her a day off. So all the food's going to be just good, 
yummy, casera, so home-style food. And so most of the stuff on the menu is good, but you, the reason, if you're going to go all the way to Merloma, unless you have a cousin there, the reason you should go there is because of their specialties, which are the from Guadalajara, and specifically my favorite, the tortas ahogadas, but let's start with the tacos ahogados. So tacos ahogados means drowned tacos. Now, usually that means that you get a plate and it's a fried taco, mm-hmm. and there's just a little slick of sauce on it. But they do something different here. Oh, no. Like, basically what they're doing is how Mexican families eat during Lent. So they get this potato soup. It's, you know, it has a little bit of tomatoes, some beans, just really creamy and just yummy. And they get full tacos dorados. And instead of just being the potato tacos, they could put, you could put picadillo, which is ground beef. You could put some chicken tinga, which, of course, is a, like spiced chicken. And then they put them in this bowl. So these tacos, they don't get this little schmear. It's a they're drowned. Like, and they're floating. They're floating. The- like you see like the fins of the, the edges of the tacos just sticking out kind of like a promontory or something. And you get them, the tacos remain crunchy. And oh my God, it, it's, it's, again, I, I can only describe it. Like Mexi- the Mexicans in the audience out there, they'll know about this during Lent. And if you're not Mexican, it's just this wonderful, comforting thing. And then they give you this special salsa, which I thought was interesting. So in Guadalajara, you have your regular salsas, but if you're eating barbacoa or you're eating these tacos ahogados, they give you this like almost salsa de aceite, which is super, super spicy. So you put it into the soup, it just muddies up everything and just makes it even spicier, but just absolutely perfect. So wonderful, wonderful dish that it's the best taco ahogados I've ever had here in Southern California. That sounds incredible. And for me, it would be enough. But there's something as homey and yummy and wonderful. And we've been so focused on tortillas lately. Something <laughs> that would be so good to just keep stuffing into your tortilla, whether you rip it or roll it. <laughs> Still, the debate continues. And so the menu for the, Gua- the Guadalajara specialties, it's really limited. And I get it because like in Miraloma, it's still, you know, it's not completely Mexican yet. And the, I love the crowds that go in there because it's like this mix between white retirees, construction workers of all ethnicities, and then like uh, Mexican immigrants with a little bit of money that were able to move out to Miraloma. But the other great specialty that they have from Guadalajara Casadillas is carne en su jugo, which <laughs> I already Yum. see you. Oh my God. So in the grand galaxy of Mexican soups here in Southern California, we know about menudo. Most of us know about pozole. Biria has made this big thing in the past couple of years, but carne en su jugo, still not enough people know about it. Oh, it's so good. And all it is, is just, it's beef in its own broth, so in its consomme. You put in some tomatillos, you put in some beans. At Casa Diaz, they give you like these, it's kind of just for texture, but three small tostadas with some beans and uh, yellow cheese on top of it. But oh my God, the carne en su jugo, it's like drinking a steak. Beefy, the beans give it just a little bit more of that umami flavor. Then you uh, dress it with some cilantro if you want, or onions, which I love the onions because it just gives it a little bit of jolt. And oh, and then they make their own, you know, uh, handmade tortillas. So you just dunk them. You don't rip. You roll them and you dunk it in, and it is just absolutely amazing. And the carne en su jugo, it's sort of popped up in the past couple of years, but the problem is the people who still really love it more than anyone are people from Jalisco, and we have a lot of people from Jalisco in Southern California, but the one dish that seems to be more popular than carne en su jugo, which is also here, is tortas ahogadas. 
And then they also do a barbacoa de res. Oh, yeah, the barbacoa de res is good. So you just get this big, huge platter of just uh, beef, you know, the Mexican-style barbecued beef, which is slow-roasted, low and slow. They put the platter right there, and then they put the consomme on the side. So you could eat it dry. I tend to like to eat my barbacoa dry as is, and then you get the consomme, and you just drink it. Oh, especially... Now that it's going to start getting cold, it is the perfect dish. As you drink the consomme, they give you that oil-based super hot salsa, and then you just dunk it in a little bit, and barracoderes is super, super good. But carne en su jugo and those, the tacos ahogados, those are just the stars. Those are the stars, but we have to mention the other thing, the six-foot burrito. <laughs> Okay, yeah, the six-foot burrito, that's what you order for the Super Bowl Sunday or like, you know, it's just when you're going to have a big catering party. It's good. It's fine. It must sell a lot because outside Casa Diaz, they have one big neon sign that says carne en su jugo, and then right next to it, six-foot burrito, which <laughs> you shouldn't go out. I mean, you have to order in advance, and it's good, but really everything Casa Diaz does is good. Even like the chilaquiles, they make some chilaquiles with uh, cheese and chorizo, which is absolutely amazing. The huevos rancheros are good. Just the regular tacos. They also sell gorditas, not the big, huge gorditas that you get at loncheras, but kind of smaller ones. The way the way my mom used to make was, you know, picadillo with uh, papas, with queso, or just the best one, beans and queso. Oh, my God. And everything's handmade. They, there's actually a sign there that says, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, please be patient because we're making everything from scratch. Again, the st- type of place where a Mexican family feels confident enough that mom's not going to throw shade at them for taking them there. And you eat, and is your mom going to say, oh, this is the best food of all time? No, but that's the best thing. Mom's not going to say a single thing because it's like she's eating at home. And isn't that the best type of restaurant? Absolutely. Thank you, Gustavo. Gracias. That's it for our show this week. In case you missed any of it, listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, leave us a review if you liked what you heard. My thanks to the Good Food team, Nick Liao, Laryl Garcia, Joseph Stone, and Ronnie Mickelson. Special thanks to Laura Kondarajan, Amy Ta, Kenny Ng, and Paul Lamardo. I'm Evan Kleiman. Join us next week for a special episode on Filipino food that first aired in March. 